Okay, so back in the day, I run a group advocating for social services in San Francisco. And we talked to the mayor and say, why are the mental health services, the children's services, the veteran services, why aren't these desperately needed priorities better funded? Why is it always with the hat in the hand, the begging, when we're doing the city a favor? And he says, simply, you're not organized. So we organize. Marching, door knocking, city council meetings, mayoral meetings, community meetings, stakeholder meetings, meetings, meetings on top of meetings. And finally, finally, our tiny team of do-gooders collects enough signatures for a ballot measure to take our fight to the voters. And I'm thrilled. I'm proud. Instead of the business lobbyists in their fancy suits and power lunches, instead, my scruffy, scrappy band of righteous agitators is going directly to the people to demand we do right by the least fortunate. I'm the guy dotting I's and crossing T's, making sure the paperwork is just right. No technicalities, no mistakes are going to snatch this from us. And today's the deadline. Hundreds of people volunteered months to get us to this place. They trust me to get us over the finish line. And I'm not waiting till the end of the day to turn this into the voting officials. No way. No way. I roll up to City Hall, talk to the city supervisors, talk to their staffs, let everybody know that at long last, this sleeping giant has risen. Hey, Mr. Mayor, remember what you said? Well, we're organized now almost noon. The registrar's office is in the basement. I'm going to turn this paperwork and treat myself to a big juicy steak with some French fried potatoes and maybe maybe even a cocktail because today I deserve this. I stroll to the office. People, few of the business lobbyists huddled. They had just turned in their paperwork too. Gentlemen, I glide past and see the voting official locking her office door. Oh, you're going to lunch? I just wanted to turn in our ballot signatures as well. But I can certainly wait until you return. She looks up at me, shakes her head. All ballots must be in by 12 o'clock noon. No exceptions. Wait, the office closes at 5. The office closes at 5, and it's 12.01 now. Can you just take this? I'm sorry. For signatures, the rules are very strict. If it's not stamped by noon, I can't accept it. Good afternoon. No, 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 no. Not noon, five o'clock. City Hall closes at five o'clock. Five o'clock. This doesn't even make any sense. Five o'clock. She pushes past me, past the roar of blood in my ears, past the grinning City Hall workers, past the fancy suit-wearing guys holding their hands over their mouths, not even trying to stop themselves from laughing. Today on Step Judgment, shame. My name is Lynn Washington. I swear on everything holy, to my dying day, even to my final breath, I will know exactly what time you have to turn in signatures for a San Francisco ballot measure. If you're listening to Step Judgment. Creator Paula Williams, she realized that we all carry shame, but when we share it, we can shed it. So Paula got an old phone booth off of Craigslist, and she partnered with the production company Sound Made Public. Together, they paint it blue and white. They place a phone with a recorder inside. They stick a red neon sign on top saying, speak your shame, and they invite people in. And over 1,000 recordings later, Shame Booth has become an art installation, a podcast, a hotline, a live event space, and a movement to help people get proud. Today, you get to hear some of what was said. These are real people revealing some of their darkest secrets. So sensitive listeners are advised that our next story mentions substances and addiction. And our first piece is a father talking about his son. Snap Judgment. This is Shame Booth, an opportunity for you to speak your shame. 
What is it that you've been carrying around that's been weighing heavy on your heart that you want to get rid of? Please do so after the beep and walk out of this booth with your head held high, feeling lighter and shame free. Yeah, so the uh, thing that I've been struggling letting go of is uh, how I've dealt with my transgender teenage child. Um, um, I love my child, and I'm super, super proud of the fact that he's transgender, and he stands for what he believes in, and uh, he's made the transition from female to male. However, at the same time, he is a typical teenager, and... uh, and uh, I've made some decisions on how I handled disciplining him when I caught him smoking cigarettes and smoking weed and he got mouthy. And, uh, you know, out of, it was out of fear because I'm afraid for my child because I'm a recovering addict. And I, I know where that stuff takes you or took me and I'm scared for my child. And so when I confronted on him and he responded to me with hostility, I... Uh, I matched his hostility and one up to him and I pretty much lost control and I picked him up by the back of the neck and I threw him across the room on his bed and I became very, very verbally aggressive and intimidating and uh, pretty much thought the, that I would just scare him into submission and, uh, and I've, you know, that is not the man I want to be. I also, you know, I mean, I'm well aware of that, that, uh, the way I treat my child the way I am is going to be programming for how he's going to be later on in life. And so I've been having a hard time letting go of the fact that I've used, uh, that I use anger and intimidation to uh, try and control my child. But I also know that, uh, that I love my child and uh, that there's a world out there that needs me to be the best authentic self that I could be. And, uh, from what I've been through and the story that I have, man, that I have an opportunity to change lives. But as long as I'm walking around being being controlled by the shame and the guilt that I've uh, of mistakes that I've made out of fear, uh, gets in the way of my service to uh, making this world a better place. So I'm kind of glad they have this shame booth where I get to dump some of this shame and. Uh, you know, here, here it come out of my, my, my own mouth, man, that I just made some decisions that were ineffective out of fear, and that's not who I am, nor do I have to continue on being that man. I hope this helps. So I was a teenage mom. I had my first daughter when I was 16 and did not finish high school, did not go to college like I dreamed I would. But despite the circumstances, I made myself very successful. I worked very hard. I worked a retail job, but worked my way up to the top and eventually those successes led to bigger successes. And today I find myself working for one of the most admired companies in the world in a pretty great role that I love. But anytime I have to explain that I have a 24-year-old daughter who's already on her own and a 20-year-old son and then a two-year-old, I get looks from people. Um, Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes they ask, um, and I'm not very forthcoming about my background, even though I really have nothing to truly be ashamed of, but in my mind, because I didn't fit some kind of journey that someone expected, that person being me, to fulfill, um, it just feels like I could have done better, but I did my best, and here I am today. So thanks for this. I have nothing to be ashamed of.
Hey, it's Paula, and you've called the shame line. We are glad that you did. Whatever it is that you're carrying around, leave it here. We're not judging. And by leaving your recording, you're giving us permission to use it on our podcast. So thanks, and be well. Yes, you're certainly welcome to use this in the podcast. 67 years old, we're sitting in the church parking lot, and yeah, I could go into confession, but this is not about confession. Is it about sin, or is it about self-disgust? Here's what I'm self-disgusted about, embarrassed about, ashamed about. Kind of going through a couple months, six weeks of cross-dressing. When I was about 12, I went in the bathroom and tried to put on my mom's bra and panties. I thought that felt great. And it did for a little while, but then it didn't. And I went away on that stuff. That never bothered me again. I'm embarrassed about it. I'm ashamed of it. I'm embarrassed that I piped my own education. I went to Notre Dame and liberal arts and I cheated my way through it, and then I said the education there was disgusting. You can't have it both ways. I feel bad that I stole money from my folks. They were dying, and they had a lot of money, and I just siphoned off a lot of it, and I never told my others, my siblings about it. I just took it. Why? Because I was greedy and selfish. Of course, I feel bad about being an addict, but that seems like a different deal. I'm not sure why. Okay, I'm going to go into church now, and I might even go to confession, but yeah, party. Thanks for listening. I, I think this is an important deal for me and for everybody else. Thanks. I'll see you. Big thanks to the Shame Booth team for sharing those recordings with us. And if you appreciated them, hold on, because we've got more coming your way later in this show. Next up, we're going to serve up a snap classic that dives deep into family secrets and shame. The story begins when Julie Lindahl was a kid in the 1970s. She loved visiting her grandma's apartment. It was a peaceful place that felt like another world. Sensitive listeners should know this story does contain images of violence. Snap judgment. It was the quiet. To me, it was as though whenever I went in there, the carpet absorbed sound. The windows were very thick, so no sound from the outside road came in. One of her favorite poems by a poet called Uland, he said, quiet is best. It was one of her, one of her favorite lines. Everything around her said that, quiet is best. In the calm of her grandmother's apartment, Julie would sometimes leaf through old family photos. One of the albums had a photo of a man in a dark overcoat standing in a field, looking down, his face a black and white blur. This was Julie's grandfather. He was a mystery to her. He died when she was young, and the only thing she knew about her grandfather was that he'd been a farmer. That's because nobody really talked about him. And somehow she knew not to ask. Any mention of her grandfather was met with silence. Hostile silence. And whatever this thing was that made everybody stop talking had kind of broken everyone. Julie dealt with it by shutting down. But her sister coped in another way. Well, my sister dealt with it. She would run into the room next door, shut the door, and and get out a crayon and paint her face with it and write all kinds of expletives on it and looked at herself in the mirror just to get it out of her system. As kids, Julie and her sister were afraid to bring it up further. But over the years, every once in a while, Julie would think back to that man in the photo with the blurry face. It wasn't until she was an adult that she got the courage to ask the question she'd held on to for so long. It, it was an extraordinary moment uh, in which my father and I were alone. 
We'd had a very nice day together, and we, you know, it had started to rain, and we'd we got on a public bus to go back to my small apartment. And then I thought I'd just have to, to ask him. We were sitting on this bus, and I said, you know, Dad, who was my grandfather? Opa, as I called him. And my father's hands started to shake. He didn't even look at me. He looked almost blue in his face. And my father just said, you must never look into this. Never ask these questions and never look into this. Immediately, I felt awful. Just felt like I had to retreat from that and not touch it, ever. Julie never raised the topic again, until her father died. You know, his last words to me were, look after my grandchildren, and I thought, oh God, to look after your grandchildren, I have to do something you forbade me to do. She had to do it because Julie didn't want her own children to grow up like she did, under the weight of an oppressive secret. She wanted everything out in the open. Part of me wonders, you know, why didn't you just go to your grandmother and ask her? Because I realized from the very beginning that nobody, nobody else in the family was going to help me with this because, you know, they, they had tried to live their lives um, forgetting about it. That's how she found herself in Berlin, in the German Federal Archives, watching as an archivist pulled out a stack of information, about a hundred pages. He was holding the answers she'd wanted her whole life. And I said, well, what's in them? And he said, well, it's their, as far as I can see, it's mostly their application documents to marry to get into the SS. And I, I said, what? The SS was, you know, Hitler's elite. What went through my head was a scream. When she finally looked at her grandparents' marriage application, it started to sink in. Her grandfather was a Nazi. They had to present evidence of their racial purity, physical examinations, Images of themselves taken from all kinds of angles, family trees. I had known my grandmother for so many, you know, all my life, of course. This image of this woman standing there holding me as a baby and rocking me and bestowing her love upon me was there. And I just couldn't square it with... You know, this picture of her laughing and smiling and looking happy and ecstatic about her application to to be an SS wife, because she was in there too. I could see her signature everywhere in these documents, and I remembered all the birthday cards that she'd sent me that had the same handwriting in them. My grandmother has not told me the truth, The truth was that Julie's grandparents had been stationed by the SS in Poland during the war. Germany had taken the farms, deported the landowners, and were essentially enslaving local Poles to farm for them until ethnic Germans could come take their place. Her grandfather's job was to oversee the farmers' estates. He had complete power over them, and he used it. He was a fanatic, and he was you know, was a completely convinced, ideologically convinced Nazi who who acted on all of his impulses and all the propaganda that he was pumped full of. That old blurry photo of her grandfather in a field, that was him on captured farmland. The people in the background were the Polish farmers he oversaw. And Julie now knew why her grandparents had fled suddenly to Brazil in 1960. 
They had to escape war trials in Europe. I didn't go to see her after that. When, how long was it, how long after that was it that you visited your grandmother again? But I don't think I'd seen her for a couple of years. I was in Germany and I thought, well, I'm here, so, so I, I should go see her. Um, and she, she was, you know, very, um, very happy to see me, always very happy to see me. And um, I could see that she had changed uh, a lot. She had grown quite a bit older, and um, she had much more difficulty moving, and her hair had gone completely white. I didn't want to hurt this elderly woman uh, who had otherwise been fairly kind to me. So I told her I'd been in northern Germany, I'd visited these different places, um, and she was very, you know, curious about that. Uh, and of course, it, it launched her right back into memory. She swung between describing the beautiful life and very much from the perspective of everything they had lost because that was a phrase she repeated over and over again. Oh, child, all that we lost. She always said that. Yeah, to me it ends up being a very heartless thing to say given the, the suffering and murder that was going on everywhere there. So I... I was getting more and more upset, but eventually I, I, I interrupted her and asked her, was your husband in the SS and were you an SS wife? She said something like, um, well, that's just preposterous. I don't know where you got that from. I felt like someone had taken a sledgehammer to my head. Uh, and she, she didn't want to stay there, obviously, because she very quickly moved on from, from the topic. And I, my head was hurting so much, so I just, I just kind of sat there and nodded, and I could, I could barely look at her anymore. All I could do was sit there and, and feel this, this, this horror and, and, and terror at not being able to acknowledge the truth. Julie used to talk to her grandmother on the phone every week. But after that day, she started avoiding her calls. Julie understood that if she wanted answers, she'd have to find them on her own. So she went to the next logical place, Poland. And it was in Poland, in another archive, that she found three folders of statements by witnesses from when Poland was prosecuting war criminals. Each of the three folders had her grandfather's photo on the cover. To me, he looked pretty glassy-eyed. It was as though the feeling had gone from his eyes. Inside the folders were statements from Polish farmers— they called her grandfather a devil to the people. All in Polish, of course, so I couldn't read them. So I sat there staring at this. But of course, for me, it was just to see this and see his face on the cover of these, of these folders and, and to know that there were all these eyewitness accounts in there was, was mortifying. Uh, this young historian sat there and he could see that I was just beyond myself. So he, he came in and he said, can't you come and have a cup of tea with me in the kitchen? And the two of them sat down to tea. Julie explained what she was doing, and the historian, whose name was Robert, said he'd help. He translated some of what the witnesses described. There were horrendous um, accounts of the things that were used to torture people and very specific with what types of tools, whips, and other horrible things that he used. 
some of these people were permanently unable to get up after. People just lived in a complete state of terror. After they'd read it, Robert looked at her. He said, so what are you going to do next? I just spit out instinctively that I'm going to hire a car and I'm going to drive out into the countryside and I'm going to find these people, the people who had testified in these documents. And he said, well, you don't speak any Polish, so how how are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know, but I I just have to do it. And he said, well, I'll come with you. Turn, Julie Lindahl is headed to find the men who suffered at the hands of her grandfather decades ago. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the shame episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left, Julie Lindahl and Robert were headed into the Polish countryside to find the men who called her grandfather a devil to the people. Sensitive listeners should note, this story does contain images of violence. Discretion is advised. So the next day, he and I jumped in the car and we drove. They drove out of the city and into the Polish countryside. Flat farmland dotted with small houses and airy remnants of the past. One of the estates that my grandfather had held, one could actually see the ruins of a gigantic brick barn that he had built. The first witness they were looking for, they didn't have much to go on. Just a town and a family name. Julie doubted the man was even alive. And even if he was, most of the roads didn't have street signs. Then Robert spotted someone in a nearby field. So he took the papers in his fist and got me to stop the car and ran into the middle of this field, held the papers up to the farmer who stopped his tractor. And the farmer said, just drive over there and you'll, you'll find the family. When Robert and Julie went down the road and knocked on the door of a small dilapidated house, a timid woman in her 60s answered. And Robert explained in Polish why we were there. And and she said, yes, that is my husband's testimony you have there. That's his name. Please come in. The husband was sitting in a a chair where every time you move slightly, the kind of rusty springs could be heard. He looked pale on his face. His shirt was partly open, so you could see his ribs sticking out. It was clear that he was very sick. Robert shook his hand and explained, uh, but the man wouldn't shake my hand. I just sat down to the side. Robert and the man started talking in Polish. Back when Julie's grandfather was overseeing the farms, this man had been a teenager. He had very blue eyes, blue-gray eyes, and this look of of fury in his, his eyes. These people were kept in sort of near-starving conditions. The idea was basically to keep them going as long as they were needed, and then they could be dispensed with. You know, this is what he had endured during his teenage years. He'd say something to Robert and stop, and then he would look over at me again and just shoot this, these furious looks at me. And to me, it felt like, please let me take this. Please just shoot it all at me. Just go on, because that's why I'm here. The man with the blue eyes did not want to talk very much. And it wasn't long before Robert looked at Julie and just said, I think we need to go. At the end, I just thought, whatever I do before I leave this room, 
I must try to shake this man's hand because I want him to know that whatever his feelings are, that's okay with me, you know. He can have those feelings. So we were about to leave, and he didn't, he shook Robert's hand, but he didn't shake mine, and and I, I took his hand and uh, just said goodbye and, and thanked him. And he looked at me in the oddest way, as as though he just didn't really understand, as though there should still be some rivalry between us. Robert and Julie kept going down the list of names. When they pulled up to the driveway of the next house, they found the second man already outside. He looked like he was in his 90s. He'd lost most of his teeth, and he was sitting on a tree stump, carving some wood with a penknife. He was just sitting quietly, kind of talking to himself a little bit, and then there were two young people, I think in their late 20s or early 30s, who were fixing a bicycle. Robert talked to the younger people who were very kind and just said, absolutely, you can talk to our grandfather. And the granddaughter went over and took him by the arm and brought him inside the house. When they all sat down at the table, Robert started asking questions. The man's granddaughter would repeat each question in his ear so he could hear them. But the man had dementia, and he didn't understand exactly who Julie was. He kept asking, who who are we talking about? Who is this? And eventually, the granddaughter shouted my grandfather's name into his ear. And then all of a sudden, the man, you know, you could see something was coming to him in his mind. And suddenly, he had sort of his hands over his head like he was protecting himself from something. He said, I'm in a, in a lineup of people who are going to be shot. And he was in this barn and he was crawling around trying to hide somewhere. And it was like somebody who was being tortured. It was almost a kind of wailing. This man was clearly actually having a flashback. I just said, stop. We just have to stop this. And, and the granddaughter sort of calmed him down and, and, and took him outside again. And, and very quickly, he reverted back to his old situation. He was there and sitting there and carving this piece of wood and, and, and became calm again. What came to me after those first two meetings when I was in the car with Robert was we were hurting people. We were bringing back memories that were better left alone. And so... I actually said to Robert, I don't think that this is a good idea. I, I think we should stop doing this now. And I think somewhere he understood the, the importance of this in a way that I had not comprehended. He just continued. He said, no, we have to go on. And in fact, he just got in the driver's seat and, and stepped on the pedal. Over the Polish country back roads, they wandered from house to house. Robert jumped out at each one to ask for directions until they found the house of the third man. Eventually, we pulled into just outside of a home. It was very, very isolated. What struck me was that there was this beautiful cherry orchard in front of the house. Uh, A man came out, somebody, a man in his 80s, And he had actually been informed of our arrival in advance. He was smiling, and you could see that he was looking at me uh, in a very intent way, as though he was trying to make out whether he would recognize any of my features. I noticed a big gash over one of his eyes. He had welcomed us in his house, and we sat in his dining room. His daughter and his wife came and served us cherries and and drink, and Robert started to ask him questions. He had, obviously, a very strong need to get this story out. The man had been 10 years old when his parents worked on her grandfather's estate, and he had clear memories of that time. 
This gash over his eye had been from a blow delivered by my grandfather to his head because he hadn't doffed his hat when my grandfather had walked past him. There was one thing he was insistent on talking about, the gardener who worked at her grandfather's house. He explained that Julie's grandfather used to ride the fields on a white horse with a revolver and a whip. Then, at the end of the day, he'd come home and the gardener would be there. And the gardener was daily, was the object of his, you know, whatever he hadn't unleashed on people in the field, he unleashed on the gardener with his batons and whips. I had big pools of tears on my face all the time. There was no other way to be. And um, this guy could see that. And, and he, he took my forearms into his hands and he kind of shook them a bit. Then he, he said, you didn't do anything and you need to remember that, you know, it's not your fault. He told me that if I was like my grandmother, I must be an angel. And I said, why? And, and he said, well, because your grandmother called the apothecary when people were beaten. Julie tried to make sense of this. It wasn't exactly how she pictured her grandmother during the war. And since she'd also found out that her grandfather had abused her grandmother, Julie wasn't sure how to feel. How complicit was her grandmother in all of this? I went outside to wait for Robert before we left, so I was just standing in front of the vegetable garden and amid the cherry trees, trying to look around and, and get some air and uh, collect myself. I, I was looking at these rows of very beautiful-looking vegetables in this plot, and suddenly I felt a physical presence the man came out with his wife and placed themselves on either side of me, very close to me, so that our hands were, were touching. I think really what I could hear was our own breathing. I'll never forget. It was only later, as Julie and Robert drove away that day, that Julie realized who that man was. He was the gardener's son. It was obvious that Julie had to talk to her grandmother. She was, she was over 100 years old, and, and so therefore I felt like I don't know if I can tell her and, and ask her about this. Is this the kind of thing you do to an elderly person who, when you were younger, bestowed love and affection upon you. I talked to my husband about it, and uh, he said, well, you know something, this is about you. How are you going to feel about yourself if she passes away and you have never told her what you know? So Julie went to meet her grandmother in Germany in that same room with the thick carpet and the thick windows. I wanted to be very close to her because I realized it was going to be a very difficult moment. Uh, so I sat sort of a bit below her on a footstool and I took her hand into mine because I knew that she was calmed by, you know, if someone stroked her hand. So I did that. And I just said, you know, I think we just have to be open about the fact that Grandpa was in the SS. And I thought that she would argue with me and deny it and all this. And then she just sat back and finally decided that there's no way to argue with this. And she said, yes, you're right, he was. All the time I was trying to keep the door open for her, for her to, to say, yes, this happened, and yes, I regret it, and it was a terrible thing, and it was awful. And that would have been enough. It would have been enough for me. But we never got there because she went on for a long time, several hours, 
defending their actions, which I could barely believe. I was so completely out of my wits. She believed that the world was out to get Germans, and you know, the Holocaust was an invention by the international media to keep us Germans down. I don't know, I don't know with the years if she actually started to believe this, because you know, you can repeat something so often that it becomes your truth. There was no way she couldn't have known. Because after all, they were right in the middle of it all. I mean, an hour away from one of their places was the first place in Poland where they gassed people in trucks. So she, she, she knew all these things. So I thought, how can you defend this stuff? But that's what she did. Her eyes were absolutely wide open. Was there a moment when you realized that your relationship had changed? Yeah, this might sound outrageous, but I did love my grandmother to the end. People can say whatever they like about that. You shouldn't love someone who's like that. I have to say I did because she was a good grandmother to me when I was young. And, you know, that doesn't, doesn't leave me. I didn't want her to have a heart attack or something because I, I had confronted her. So I called her later on to see how she was, and she was very, very angry with me. She basically turned the tables and said, you are the problem in this family, not anyone else. You are the problem because you have dug up this story. And I thought, it's over. There's nothing left to say. She was snapping at me through most of that conversation, but she ended up by saying just calmly this favorite line of hers, quiet is best. Quiet is best. Thanks so much to Julie Lindahl for sharing her story. Julie has written a book about this experience. It's called The Pendulum, a granddaughter's search for her family's forbidden Nazi past. And a version of this story was originally produced for the podcast Kind World. Check out our website, snapjudgment.org, for more information. The original score for this story was by Leon Morimoto, with production assistance by Liz Mack. The story was produced by Erica Lance. Don't go anywhere, Snappers, because I told you we would have more Shane Booth and more Shane Booth we shall have. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Shame episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and we're taking you back into the shame booth, a refurbished phone booth where people walk in and anonymously share their experiences of shame. Now, these recordings are raw, so sensitive listeners should know that one of the stories we are about to play makes mention of a sexual assault. The stories you're about to hear, they come from everyday people who step into shame booth's safe space and they open up. Snap judgment. This is Shame Booth, an opportunity for you to speak your shame. What is it that you've been carrying around that's been weighing heavy on your heart that you want to get rid of? Please do so after the beep. And walk out of this booth with your head held high, feeling lighter and shame-free. Hi. I am... I'm ashamed when I'm not successful enough at work. Um... Whenever the guys I know in my job don't succeed, they seem to be able to, without any problem at all, 
blame it on outside circumstances and say, oh, well, that was against me and this was unfair and that was, you know, that's just bad luck. And I just can't do it. It's, you know, for me, it's always, well, if only I'd been better. I should have been better. I should have done that better. I should have done that better. I should have known better. I should have already known what to do. And you can't ask for help because you're supposed to know already because you're an idiot if you don't already know. But I see people asking for help all the time and it just, it doesn't, I see guys asking for help or not even that. They don't even have to ask. It just gets offered. Anyway, that's, that's what I'm ashamed of. I'm ashamed when, it, when I'm not good enough at my job and it makes me sad because I fucking love my job. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, this is a cool project. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. I am just starting to figure this out, but I grew up with a father who convinced me that I was worthless. He didn't mean to, I don't think. He didn't do it actively, but he did it by undermining me and saying he didn't really understand what my role in the family was. And now I'm realizing that I'm in a marriage that has a really similar pattern. Someone who's told me that I should depend on him for my opinions, that I'm not good enough for the person I think I am. And he's created a picture of me that doesn't make any sense to me. And yet I believe him. He's convinced me that he's right, that I don't know myself, and that I'm crazy. And I'm just starting to figure out how to unravel this and how to take it back. Awesome, let me give you a sticker. There you go, no shame. Hello, hello. I'm going to take a little soul dump on this phone about shame and guilt, uh, which has been in the soil of my culture of being Armenian. Shame, 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 shame. I already had that pouring through my veins even before I realized I was gay. And then, yeah, realized I was gay, which made the shame storm eight million and seven times more powerful. Um, so I'm letting go of the shame and the guilt of being queer and not being able to give my, my parents the gift of their only child, marrying a, a handsome, wonderful, distinguished Armenian man and giving them many, 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 many children. Time to let that go because it's preventing me from reaching my highest potential and from truly embracing my, my queerdom and my, uh, my exponentially growing love of women. So I'm ready to let that go and flush the motherfucking toilets. When my young adult daughter came home to live with me here in San Francisco, she was not making great choices about dating men and she was meeting them online and going out with them looking for love that was missing probably love that I was not providing her love that she wasn't feeling from her dad as well and on the 4th of July, three years ago, she left to go to a party. And what I didn't know is that she was meeting a young man at the park. And what I found out that evening when she came home, shortly after midnight, uh, was that they had had um, too much to drink and they went back to his house and she passed out and he tried to have sex with her. Um, she came to and pushed him away and he continued to try to um, rape her. Um, she was alert enough that she came home and was very upset. 
and woke me to tell me about it, and I was not uh, the loving mother that I wished I would have been. I um, blamed her for um, encouraging the behavior and having participating in drinking and getting drunk that day with somebody that she didn't know, and I, I offered her no sympathy. I am ashamed of that, and I hope that uh, someday she'll forgive me for um, not being sensitive and loving and listening to her the way that she needed me to that evening. I love you, honey. I'm sorry, and I have learned from this, and um, I'm proud to be your mom. I love you. A very, very big thank you to the brave people who stepped into the shame booth, bearing their souls and speaking on their shame. To find out more information, head on over to shamebooth.org and subscribe to their podcast. Shame Booth's creator and host is Paula Williams. The podcast is produced by the fine folk at Sound Made Public, Tanya Katinjan, Philip Wood, and Katie McCutcheon. Production assistance was by Snaps, Regina Bediaco. It happened again. I know, I know, I know. But if you need more storytelling in your life, and you need more storytelling in your life, subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast right now. Hours of storytelling goodness awaits you on every podcast platform there is. We here at Team Snap will be your new best friend. Subscribe to the podcast right now before it's too late. Let long last. You've asked for it. It is finally here. Go to snapjudgment.org right now to get the Snap Judgment t-shirt of your dreams. The Snap Judgment Shameless Commerce Division is open for business. Fly your Snap flag high. Let the world know you Snap. Get your goodies at snapjudgment.org slash shop. Now you can follow me on the Twitter and the Instagram, and I'll tell you about my own shame booth. Snap is brought to you by the team that feels a deep and abiding shame for the wrongs they have committed, except for the producer, Mark Ristich. His response has always been to just double down. Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Pat McCini Miller, John Fasile, Shana Sheely, Marissa Dodge, Nika Singh, Eliza Smith. Lauren Newsom, Teo Decott, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, Regina Beniaco, and Leon Morimoto. And you may have already discovered that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could send your mom some pictures from your phone of that camping trip you went to. But the pictures you actually sent to your mom are photos of what you did late night at that camping site you went to so bad. You're so bad. And you would still, still... Not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is PRX. Pee.